0: Welcome, everyone. Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to have a discussion about vitamin C, otherwise sometimes referred to as ascorbic acid. And to join us in that discussion is Nathan Goodyear, uh, who is a physician practicing natural medicine. And I met Nathan about two months ago in Denver, where we were both presenting at the Ozone Conference sponsored by Dr. Schallenberger. It was in Denver, Colorado and i am actually he's speaking at an event in tampa on vitamin c it's going to have some of the world-class experts there including dr paul merrick dr pierre corey and a few others that i forgot about i'm sure nathan will remind me but uh well nathan will be presenting and yours truly so that's going to be in tampa uh, I think it's the first week of October. So it's welcome to the public. So you're welcome to join. It's a nice time to be in Florida and, you know, the land of the free, <laughs> essentially the freest state in the country, I believe. And uh, so we're going to talk today about some of the highlights of that event and vitamin C in general and its useful purposes, especially in treatment of not only acute infections, like we've been going, struggling with most of the population in the last two years, but also in the treatment of malignancies and cancer. It's a powerful weapon, but you have to understand how to use it. And the devil's in the details. And Dr. Uh, Goodyear has treated many patients with cancer and ascorbic acid. And he can share some of his insights with us because it's not terribly expensive. This is a cost to it, of course, but is interventions go for treating malignancies, especially compared to conventional medicine, it's basically free. Okay, so welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us today.
1: Dr. McCullough, it's truly an honor. Thank
0: you. All right, so probably best to start by giving people an idea of your background and how you got into uh, working uh, or using vitamin C primarily parenterally or intravenously as an adjunct in your therapies.
1: Yeah, great. I think the history always tells us a lot about where we come from and about where we're going. Um, I'm actually a gynecologist by training, so I was a pelvic floor surgeon. Oh, and sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what I did noticed, you, you know, you, when I... Did you do OB too? Uh, just a little bit, just a little bit, yeah.
0: Because that's the thing that kills your, shortens your lifespan because you're
1: a <laughs> guy. Oh, yeah. Up at all know, the World no. Health Organization's done all those studies on, you know, um, the you know, overnight circadian rhythm disruption from the night shift worker from nurses and how it's carcinogenic. But anyway, so um, what I noticed when I came out of residency was that all a lot of what we were taught in practical cause and effect, and here's the way you resolve it or remedy it. um, It worked sometimes, but most of the times it did not. So, Mm I, I cut my teeth with with the hormones, as most do, and and that seemed to fit well with me as it relates to hormones. I always thought that they were critical in the you know the the female uh, group of patients that I would see. but <clears throat> but I also saw men because it was a part of our primary care requirement. And we did a lot of cancer, a part of our gynecological requirement. So fast forward, I'm moving through the integrative movement starting at about two thousand and six. And uh, I developed my own rare tumor, leave it to her, for docs to kind of get their own rare thing. I developed a pheochromocytoma. Oh, and nice. it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, 300 over 130, that's not so nice. But
0: <laughs> you know, that, that's, it, that's your blood pressure, I'm assuming. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. 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 So I don't so, even think po- blood, blood pressure cups go up that high, 300.
1: I, that's. I mean, why didn't you, you, you stroke? Po- you should have stroked out. Yeah, it's a, so postoperatively the morning after surgery. I'm in ICU, so the first two wake up calls I get are from the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, and they both say, both tell me, "I don't know how you didn't stroke," and I'm like, "Oh, thank you very much." But um, anyways, that began my final transition into just cancer. Already at that point, I was doing probably fifty percent cancer because hormones, you know, begets those questions. Vitamin C was a part of that, and I've been in the vitamin research uh, for for a long, long time. And so the last five, five and a half years, I've been primarily just uh, holistic integrative cancer.
0: Perfect. All right. So, and you're practicing out of Arizona, in Arizona?
1: Yeah, I'm here in Scottsdale, Arizona, Brio Medical. I'm the medical director here. And uh, so we are a holistic integrative cancer clinic. We have four physicians here, two medical doctors and two naturopathic physicians.
0: Good. Yeah, that's great. So uh, I'm sure uh, vitamin C is not the only uh, uh, modality you're using. So I'm wondering if you could, um, because we're going to do a deep dive into vitamin C, uh, but I wonder if you can uh, describe some of the other approaches you're using in your clinic.
1: Absolutely. You know, my goal is the conventional approach is to you know, they follow this uh, strategy of destroy to heal. And I just don't know where that really occurs in nature. You you have to heal to heal. Um, and so what we do in our strategy of therapies is we try to target. So when you look at holistic natural therapies, there's this assumption by so many, including conventional medicine, that we're just throwing darts up on the wall and hope they stick. But in actuality, we're following genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, this kind of future of medicine that's here now. And we're being incredibly specific for the dysfunction within the cancer, but with natural holistic or integrative therapy. So vitamin C, for example, melatonin, both IV oral. I love vitamin C with um, actually, um, it's a natural therapy, but it's the gold standard treatment for malaria, artesanate. Those two are beautiful in conjunction with prostate cancer and breast cancer. Um, I love curcumin, Uh, you know, curcumin is incredibly broad in its anti-cancer effects, very specific. Uh, I love doing things like hyperthermia in sequence with high dose vitamin C and curcumin. Uh, Studies out have shown that when you give vitamin C with uh, hyperthermia, here we're talking about whole body hyperthermia, you actually achieve a higher plasma ascorbic acid concentration. So that's going to Impact the fight against cancer, especially with immune system. Of course, you can't talk about holistic integrative without mistletoe. I think the future. I was going to ask you
0: about that mistletoe, especially with hypothermia.
1: Yeah, I love mistletoe and naturopaths in your (laughs) clinic. Oh yeah. You know, I love it. But it's so misunder, it's so misunderstood and misunderused, just like vitamin C. You know, everybody thinks Christmas. Uh, but you can <laughs> use mistletoe to reduce, you know, uh, side effects and improve quality of life, but you can actually use mistletoe to induce fevers, fever induction therapy, which kind of goes back to yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, the
1: late 19th century where they were, you know, giving this Coley's toxin to induce, you know, resolution of some of these sarcomas. So natural therapies are powerful.
0: And mistletoe seems to be almost universally useful in just about all malignancies. Would you agree with that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's so many different types of mistletoe. A lot of species. species. Yeah. The the vast majority of them we can't get here in the U.S., unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So is it your experience using it that? It, the, I would suspect the earlier on the better because uh, Zeb Zelenko recently passed had a really serious cancer uh, and he consulted with me at it, the late stage after he had three rounds of chemo and uh, definitely directed him towards mistletoe therapy but, and he had it parenterally and went to Europe and had a variety of other treatments but obviously he did, it, did, it was too late I think. Is that your experience the earlier you started the, the more effective it's going to be?
1: always the case. You know, I don't like to talk about stages, but I think it's something the general public um, focuses on because the word stage just evokes fear and that doesn't help. Um, But most of our patients we'll see will be, you know, advanced stage, stage four, recurrent. They've gone through chemo radiation. We can have really good results there, but it's always a challenge. Typically, tumor burden's huge. But always, if we can get them earlier in the process, whether that's stage one, stage two, or get them actually Actually, before they get conventional chemo radiation, the impact is huge. I mean, I I can't tell you how many ladies with breast cancer have been able to preserve their breasts because uh, of, you know, catching it early, catching it before, you know, treatment incurs, and you can actually heal the body, not destroy it. And then, because when you destroy the immune system through conventional therapy, it's going to, you know, you're going to see it recur.
0: So I'm wondering... uh... Just generally, just a few quick questions because cancer treatment always fascinates me and I don't get an opportunity to talk to people who specialize in it too often. So I, I, one of the general principles seems to be that it's not so much the initial primary cancer that kills you, but it's when it spreads to the body or metastasizes, which is usually, I think, term, stage three or stage four. So would you agree with that? And also this with also the my understanding is that what kills most people from cancer today in the United States is not the cancer, but conventional medicine's treatment of the cancer.
1: Yeah, no, the literature is very clear on that, especially in the last five to 10 years, that 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer is when it spreads. Mm -hmm. So when it metastasizes, and thankfully, we have a pretty good understanding of how this process is occurring. So let's look at chemotherapy, maximum to tolerated chemotherapy. The literature is very clear on this and is repeatedly and not only repeatedly show this, but it shows the mechanisms and how it does it. This maximum to tolerated chemotherapy actually induces the mechanisms to spread the cancer. So they've actually looked at it in breast cancer and found that maximum to tolerated chemotherapy will reduce the primary tumor, but yet at the same time, it will spread. so it increases
0: the spreading or the the time at which it spread or the amount at
1: which it spread? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so thus that leads to 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer. So the very treatment we're using, in conventional oncology to treat the tumor is actually resulting in 90 percent of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer i mean we're cutting off our nose to, su- to spite our face in just the mildest form
0: well you can see this- we are being the, the
1: conventional murder. medical paradigm not you and i right. no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. most right. people
0: watching this for sure
1: but that that's the standard thought you know a lot of people that come to us they're so surprised they're like why didn't i know about this why didn't I know that surgery can cause receding and it can cause metastasis? Why didn't I know radiation can cause metastasis? Why didn't I know this? Or even well, biopsies too. Oh, definitively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you gotta be really careful
0: of that. So would you, would you say it's true also that it's mostly, I mean, it's number two cause of death and would you is it your understanding that the majority of people who are dying from cancer die from the treatment, not the, not the cancer itself.
1: I would agree with that. And when you actually look at the uh, prospective urban and rural epidemiologic study called the PEER study, they looked at high-income, middle-income, and low-income countries. And what they found is that country, the high-income countries, do worse. (laughs) What's that? They got to do worse. (laughs) Cancer is the number one cause of adult mortality period and and in fact in the US according to data interestingly enough i can't find any since 2013 updating but uh, 23 states cancer is a number one cause of mortality in adults in the US alaska was the first state where it became that in 1993 so yeah. almost 30 years now, ago. when they when they're using those stats does it
0: separate out heart heart attacks and heart disease yeah. and heart failure from strokes or does it combine that strokes with heart attacks is cardiovascular diseases? Because I think collectively they would should outnumber cancer when you combine the strokes.
1: Yeah. I think they're looking at primary heart, you know, cardiac. Cardi- I don't think the they're cardiac. Looking- okay. So, yeah. So, yeah. but, but, if, but, if, uh, if, you know, stroke.
0: A heart, a heart disease and brain disease. are I mean, they're, to me, they're almost identical pathophysiology. They're just different target organs. And I kind of, so if you combine them, cardiovascular is probably going to number one and remain number one, but if you separate them out, yeah, your, your cancer is going to be heart disease, not too and it is in many states, as you mentioned. So,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, thank you for allowing me to it out into a little bit of the cancer th- treatments, which gives us a preface for diving deep into ascorbic acid. So you, you I, I listened to your lecture in Denver and it was really impressed and thought that people would enjoy hearing this because you shared information that isn't widely known. So why don't you just start from the top and just give us the, your perspective on vitamin C generally, and then we can eventually dive into its use for, for malignancies.
1: Yeah. So I think it, you have to take a little history, I think journey, because mm-hmm. where we are today over the last roughly 50 years or so is based out of a narrative that was set back in the early 1980s, late 1970s, when you and, you and Cameron and Paul Linus Pauling came out and did their two studies where they did 10 grams IV vitamin C for just 10 days and then followed it with oral. And they found significant benefit in their two trials of terminal cancer patients. Then uh, Rochester Mayo studies came on board in 1978, 1985, and they repeated the the same study design, but they made a, I, I don't know if it was a calculated mistake or just an error. They only used oral vitamin C, 10 grams, same dose, but they didn't do any of the IV. So then they came out and they said, well, we found no benefit. And we even repeated it in 1985 and found no benefit. And then a great debate and battle occurred between uh, you and Cameron, and one of the lead authors of that study. But of course, with Mayo behind it, they won. So that has set the narrative for the last 50 years that vitamin C doesn't work. And in fact, it still permeates conventional cancer. What were they using but- it for in those studies? Was it for cancer? So, yeah, they were using it for cancer. So for example, Linus Pauling, you and Cameron, they uh, saw in their initial study in 1976, they saw a 4.2% increased survival. Now that just means they prolonged they prolonged their survival. The second study they actually found a fifty four hundred percent increase in one year's uh survival just vitamin c that's that's all they were doing, and it was just ten grams for just ten days. so like you said earlier in the introduction, you know vitamin C is relatively speaking so cheap, but this was in a way I think almost a threat to some profitability. Because yeah, it's, it's so
0: easy, yeah. Because many, I mean, you you know what the treatments are for for most cancers, at least conventional treatments. And I think they, I mean, the probably the starting range for many of these are six figures, a hundred thousand dollars, and go up from there. Maybe you can just speak to that for a moment.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. The prior authorizations and insurance battles, though we don't even take insurance that we try to do on behalf of our patients, because. Uh, you know, when you look at a holistic integrative cancer treatment program, most pay, most uh, clinics that are running that way they they do do things outside of that insurance model, but it still comes in drastically reduced in price because when you look at just one single therapy as it relates to conventional oncology, I mean you're looking at hundreds and thousands of dollars for some of these and that's that's re- being repeated in multiple cycles. Yeah, so th- these are uh, additive, these are th- they're incredible. So wouldn't it be,
0: wouldn't it be unusual to get a bill for seven figures, a million dollars.
1: Oh, yeah. If, if you've got stage four cancer, you go in and you do surgery, you have any to stay in the ICU, you're getting chemo, radiation. I mean, you're looking at high six to a seven figure number. Absolutely. So and just
0: sort of a tangent, I'm just curious that I have no idea. I haven't been in practicing physician for 15 years or more. So what is the cost? and I certainly never used high dose vitamin C. I went up to 25. I don't think maybe I did 50 grams once, but mostly it was the limit was 25 grams. And I know you use much higher doses in your practice. So what would uh, say a, a typical dose of hundred or 200 grams in a day cost? And what would that, and how, what would the cost of a whole treatment series and it program would, would have every weeks or every months that would be, I mean, it's probably
1: five figures I would think or lower. Yeah. So, so when you absolutely, so when you look at a patient that comes to us for, you know, six to eight weeks, you know, they're, they, they come significantly under that six number window. So for example, we have patients come to us for six weeks for around $60,000. So, and that's, so that's roughly 10,000 a week. And and we know money doesn't grow on trees and we recognize that, but contrast that to conventional, okay. 10,000 could be not even one treatment, not even one treatment of which there's multiple you know, ongoing. So when we're dosing in cancer, as you alluded to there, we have to dose not just based on a number, but based on the response and the desired effect that we're going after, which is what I talked about in that lecture about following the plasma ascorbic acid levels. Because if we're gonna use something that's natural and holistic, guess what? We can follow the science to use it to target the tumor. Yeah. I mean, the, the the evidence is on our side. We don't need to run from it. We actually just need to push it out in front and follow it.
0: So why why don't you go back to uh, the point where I started interrupting you with these questions. So uh, you had mentioned that for the last 50 years, Cameron and Pauline's results were discredited by some improperly done trials. And uh, I guess that's where we took left off.
1: Yeah, so basically that's set the narrative for the last 50 years, but then things started to change um around the year 2000 not sure exactly what happened there but there was a conventional oncologist that started to do some research on vitamin C dr chen and it started to publish on the effects, the pharmacokinetics, the pharmacodynamics. So kind of this bench research, this pharmacology uh, understanding of how vitamin C was working. And lo and behold, he started to see the benefit. He started to publish on it. There was still always pushback. And then we go into the... 2000 teens, and you actually started to see, you know, academic universities, University of Iowa and others kind of bring this on board and affirm what he was seeing. And now, even in the last couple of years, even pre-COVID, you actually started to see, and this worries me, as I mentioned in that lecture, that the literature is actually starting to refer to vitamin C as a drug. In my opinion, when they ever start to refer to a natural therapy as a drug, it's because they want to now regulate it as such. But especially in the last two years, three years with COVID, vitamin C just kind of really, you know, came into everybody's consciousness because of the, you know, studies being used in the relationship to sepsis back in 2017 with Paul Merrick, and now in COVID, sepsis and everything involved there. So I was going to
0: discuss this later, but since you brought it up, I think this is a good place point to interject it. So I somewhat agree with that uh, characterization of vitamin C as a but I firmly, firmly believe it's a it's a natural biological molecule, not a micro down in my mind. But I, I like to refer to it as a pharmacomimetic. <laughs> so it's a drug-like effect, because there is a massive difference in my mind, at least, and you know, we can maybe talk about it now. And I would certainly discuss it in Tampa at the at the event, uh, the massive difference between whole food vitamin C and ascorbic acid injected parenterally. There, there are two different purposes. I would never use whole food vitamin C to treat cancer. I wouldn't ever use it for that at all because it has, a, it has a, lo- a lot of supporting biological functions, specifically as it relates to copper and iron in the cell and the mitochondria. So, and it, it gets complex. And I don't have time to go into it, but that's why I like it. And I, I, I actually encourage people never to take ascorbic acid you probably don't share this view, but I never could never to take it as a supplement unless they're treating some acute illness like an infection or certainly malignancy, then go for it because, you know, it's crazy not to. So th- that was my two cents, I guess, and concerns as a physician who really embraces using fundamentally natural uh, whole foods and unprocessed food.
1: So I just
0: think they're t- I, I, distinct molecules.
1: No, I I, I agree with you in many parts of that statement. I mean, the concept of vitamin C being a drug, I agree with you, because when you look at the context of what that word means, Mm. you know, drug, Mm. it actually means over time of history, that which makes medication, vitamin C doesn't do that, that which induces, you know, that's an opiate or a narcotic, obviously, it's not that or a poison. So these are the historical concepts of what a drug is. And vitamin C doesn't meet any of those. But then Mm. when you look at vitamin C pharmacologically, pharmacokinetically and, and, and actually in the mechanisms, you go, well, this is no drug. It's actually inducing changes metabolically, mm-hmm. you know, epigenetically. It, that's the great thing about natural therapies is, you know, conventional medicine will take an approach of kind of like throwing a monkey wrench in to shut it, shut something down at one point. So it's to like shut the whole system down without a holistic perspective of how that affects the whole body. It's a a very compartmentalized approach, but a holistic approach says here's a therapy and it's like a pebble in a calm pool in the morning. It just ripples throughout the physiology uh, of the body. So that's the beauty of natural therapies. Now in cancer, sepsis, you have to take a, something like what you talked about whole vitamin C, you know these whole plant and nutrition. I agree with you on that. But when we're dealing with this major dysfunction, you know, where things have metabolically, genetically, you know, immunologically, they've gone off the rails. We have to come in and we have to really turn the tide. And that's where the IV comes in. That's where the sodium ascorbate comes in, because that's the only way we're going to be able to change that tide. And again, that's kind of the summary of what happened in sure. those debates studies.
0: Well, well, part of it is a dosing issue because you really need to have mega doses. And if you're going to go oral, even with, with any type of vitamin C, you're going to be limited to most like 20 grams. You probably, you have more experience maybe in common, but, but many people can't even tolerate five grams before this, the, the ascorbic acid actually is a laxative and you start pooping it out. So you're limited and you need, which you'll talk about in a moment, I'm sure grams of 50, hundred, 200, 300 grams in a day. So you're never going to do that orally.
1: Yeah, there's uh, what's called two-phase pharmacokinetics, whereby at a lower dose, the gut and and kidneys will reabsorb the vitamin C and absorb it rapidly. But beyond that point, it's right around 70 micromolars, the kidneys start eliminating it and the gut starts reducing its ability to absorb it. So you kind of reach a threshold, a plateau, of which oral can impact systemic. So in cancer, what we wanna do is we wanna not just get things into the plasma, into the blood. But we want to make sure we get it into the extracellular fluid, that we get it into the tumor microenvironment, that we get it to the tumor, we penetrate the tumor, and more so we saturate the tumor. And so when you have tumors all over the place, when you have a big tumor and you have a lot of immune dysfunction, the only way you can achieve that is through a high-dose IV form. But you also have to follow it because we can just, you know, a a five-foot-two lady at 120 pounds sitting next to a six foot six, 330 pounds, they intuitively recognize that they're different, that their vitamin C dose is gonna be different, yet most of them get the exact same dose. And so no, when you- mean In most, most cancer clinics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so yeah. you have to follow to
0: make sure that you're achieving that no, therapeutic it's, level. it's brilliant. I, I don't even know how, what percentage of clinics actually measure the level in, this, in the serum or the plasma?
1: I would say very, very, very few. Yeah, um,
0: I, was, I was impressed when you measured that. Mentioned that because it was it made it is an ideal. So why don't you discuss the typical doses you find in the blood from an oral regimen, maybe five, 10 grams orally, compared to the doses that you think are ideal for treating malignancies?
1: Yeah, and and I'm an advocate for oral vitamin C, yeah. so I don't want people to think from this interview that I'm not. When you look at viral But you're not an advocate for treating cancer with the oral vitamin C Right, right, exactly. Oral vitamin C is great for early onset and prevention of viral illnesses. It's it's great. You don't need necessarily IV in that point unless things have progressed. So from an oral route, when you look at the literature, for example, in UK adults, it estimates that their plasma adult levels are somewhere around 50 micromolar. So when you take oral dosing, there's several studies that have shown this. Now, some look at liposomal versus non-liposomal, but typically you're gonna look at somewhere between uh, about hundred micromolar, 80 to hundred micromolar with the non-liposomal vitamin C. With liposomal vitamin C, you're gonna actually see an increased absorption of that into the plasma by about three to five fold, So all the way up maybe wow. to 300 micromolar. I had
0: no idea was that big of a difference, that's correct.
1: Yeah, so liposomal can make a big difference, okay? And I don't want you to think that that's not helpful, but from a minimal threshold perspective of cancer, we need at least a thousand micromolar in the okay. extracellular fluid, not the plasma, the blood. So, but there we actually need much, much, much higher. So we're really targeting a level of about 20 to 49 micromolar. That's 20,000 to 49,000 mi, uh, wow. micromoles compared to maximum 500. So very different.
0: Yeah. Uh, so essentially 50, 50 to hundred times the levels you could ever achieve even with liposomal vitamin
1: C. Exactly. And, and that's what we need. To, again, permeate through the blood to the extracellular fluid, to the tumor microenvironment, to the tumor, and however big the tumor. And really, we have to saturate that entire tumor and tumor bed. And that's the only way we can do that. But that then brings in the dosing, the duration, the frequency, because you can't just say, well, let's just dose at this dose. You you asked the question about what common dose do I use. I start at 1.5 grams per kilogram. That's kind of the uh, Mm -hmm. Mm evidence-based guideline about where to start. Over 100 grams for most. (laughs) Well, yeah, depends on the size, you're right. But for most people, they're typically starting at somewhere between 100 to 150 grams. And then we go up there based on their plasma ascorbic acid levels. Um, but I, over the years, I've become pretty good at eyeballing it based on tumor burden, inflammation. So if somebody has a lot of inflammatory markers that elevated, I'm gonna go a higher dose. If they're 330 pounds, I'm gonna go higher dose. You know, so there's lots of things that you can kind of clue into needing to do a higher dose. But most of the patients, I think, are around 150 to 200 grams vitamin C, at least three days a week. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> that that is astonishing to me. And in- it, you know, because it was my understanding. And when I was using this in my office that it's very irritating to the veins. And even when you go up to 50 grams, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. So I'm wondering how you bypass that <laughs> I mean, can you diluted in more, more solution. And just, you know, I mean, that it, it's, how does it not damage the veins at that level? Cause it's pretty irritating
1: when you're, yeah, when you're, it's a good point. When you're talking about peripheral veins, Dr. McCullough, um, yeah the doses are limited. there 50 grams, 75 grams. So typically if we're using peripheral veins, we try to find some of the bigger ones.
0: So you're not using peripheral vein. That's the clue. (laughs) We're
1: using central veins. Yeah. We're using central vein access because it becomes, you know, we need that bigger vein and you're right. Vitamin C can, it can create some issues with those veins, but when you give it or uh, give it in a central vein, uh, it's, it, it really is tolerated very well from that standpoint, but vitamin C at high doses like that, it can create some nausea issues. And so we, we work in that to prevent that. And uh, this as, but as therapies go, there's, there's no comparison. compared wow. to those chemo radiation in terms uh, of side effect, side effect profile. There's, there's no comparison.
0: Now the last time I had, uh, experience with the central line was that when I was in residency and that was forty years ago. So what what type, just curious, what type of catheter use? Is it a 12 gauge, 14, 10? I've, I have no idea. Well,
1: you know, that we have the picks and ports put in outside. So I'm not sure exactly what, what size they're using there, but uh, we use pick peripherally, not sure what size and then okay. the ports. Okay.
0: Uh, all right. So, okay. So that was an, that was interesting. Now that we have that basis, I think explain why this sh- works or should work and the, the science behind it, because this isn't some type of random, oh, this, this is a good idea. Let's try it. I mean, there's science behind this, strong science.
1: Yeah, that, that's the great thing. We have science on our side. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the real science, them, not, the pouches, not the pouches. Absolutely. Pouches. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's already there. It's like people run from it. I was like, no, push it out there. Let the science speak for itself. We're just following the science, which is what real science does, right? We follow the science. We don't create a predetermined outcome and then gear the science to get us there. But anyways, um, so vitamin C here, its effects are really widespread. I mean, you can really classify it into about seven different strategies, genomically, epigenomically, uh, transcriptomically, proteomically, metabolomically, and then immunomodulomically. So the point here is vitamin C is not just directly killing cancer cells. So what we would call cytotoxic effects. So like radiation or chemo coming in and just saying, we're going to whack this tumor, so to speak. Okay, That would be the direct cancer killing effect. Vitamin C is actually working within the metabolism of the cancer. So what that means is it creates an energy crisis. It actually depletes the body of certain uh, intermediates that actually make it so this cancer that's addicted to sugar cannot use it efficiently and it overwhelms it and it dies. It also depletes it of its ability to detoxify. These are not just broad terms, you know, I'm sure you talk a lot about detoxification and their broad term, but these are very specific measurable pathways that we can follow. So for example, vitamin C depletes the cancer in the tumor microenvironment of reduced glutathione and reducing that, getting rid of that glutathione in that cancer eliminates its ability to handle the high oxidative stress that this pro-oxidative vitamin C therapy induces and that kills the cancer cell. The other thing it does is it it really disrupts how cancer can make energy. And it's fascinating because everybody looks at this and they go, well, well, how will this affect my healthy cells? I think this is the paradigm changer of vitamin C. The environment, as much as the dose, as much as the delivery, as much as the saturation, the environment encountered by that vitamin C is as much about what dictates that result as the dose itself. So you can induce a pro-oxidative effect, a detoxification crisis, an energy crisis in cancer cells and healthy cells, eh, they're fine. Yeah. So you,
0: that's, uh, I suspect a confusing comment for many people because when they hear vitamin C or ascorbic acid, they're thinking an antioxidant. But at the doses you're using, it's a pro-oxidant. So why don't you go through the science of that and the, you know the the metabolite of hydrogen peroxide kicks in and does most of the damage.
1: Yeah, great, great point. Um, so. You know, everybody's familiar with the buffer system related to acid and base. So that pH balance. And so many people talk about that as it relates to cancer. And when you look at redox, reduction oxidation, that's really just the the flow of electrons. It's a buffer system, very similar to that acid-base balance. So in the oral doses, even in a lower dose, in an environment that allows it, vitamin C is antioxidative. And there's plenty of benefits of that. That's why it's so helpful in viral, bacterial. It's 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 countering that cytotoxic burst yeah. that vitamin C and so it's, it's donating electrons. Absolutely. It's donating it the electrons and it becomes oxidized. Yep. Yeah. It donates it to that and helps to buffer and turn that off. And that's the benefit why vitamin C in lower doses, but given IV and orally can help people in that COVID you know, sepsis, that COVID cytokine storm. But in the higher doses of vitamin C, again, dictated by the environment, instead of, Donating an electron, okay. Be, excuse me. It becomes pro-oxidative. It's very different in that it's delivering, okay, the oxidative stress to the tumor, deplete and creating it through hydroxyl free radicals, hydrogen peroxide, superoxide anions. Vitamin C is probably in the pro-oxidative effect, more delivering hydrogen peroxide. Mm -hmm. than it is the vitamin C or it's uh, double oxidized metabolite ascorbate radical. So hydrogen peroxide, it it is appearing more recently is more of the intended effect. Mm -hmm. So if we want to use the vernacular of, of conventional medicine, they would say, well, vitamin C is the pro drug and Mm -hmm. hydrogen peroxide is the drug. Okay. But you know, this is not a drug, but A lot of people, I think, will understand that concept,
0: which is why I'm such a big fan of nebulized hydrogen peroxide and have been for a long time. Sadly, it hasn't really caught on even within the natural medicine community. There's a fair number of people who who understand about it and use it, but it's relatively small. I mean, it has not caught on like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or some of these other therapies. And I think it's probably far superior. And it's oh, so, yeah. so simple, inexpensive and virtually no side effects, none, zero. Even ivermectin, even I'm a, I'm a fan of it, appropriately used, no question, but it has side effects. And it is not as, in my view, not as effective consistently as is nebulized peroxide. And certainly you can go intervene this. Schallenberg was the guy that started it and that's how we derived it from, because he was given perennial hydrogen peroxide and then say, let me try this in nebulize form. him. He is the guy that figured it out in
1: the 90s. Yeah, we, we do nebulize vitamin C as well. Um, I mean, for example, we have a gentleman here right now with esophageal cancer and he can't really open his mouth very well. And he has lots of secretions and he can't swallow. He's getting all of his nutrition through a a feeding tube. And um, you know, he's, he's gotten significant improvement in that mucus production, the ability to talk just simply by doing vitamin C nebulizing twice a day. No, I agree with you. I think it's for, for us where patients have upper respiratory pulmonary metastasis and those kind of, we have them all nebulize all of them. I agree with you. no,
0: No. So I wanted to comment on your Statement that uh, cancer cells are addicted to sugar, and I think that's not quite an accurate metaphor. Uh, and I'm sure you would agree. So, but it it tends to convey the the, the concept. But the, the more accurate version is that they're unable to utilize to to essentially use glucose and generate the fuel through their mitoc- through the mitochondria. They have to bypass it through something called the Warburg effect, and essentially when they break down glucose to a three sugar molecule pyruvate, there is a molecule that's in the cytosol of the cytoplasm of the cell, and it, and it has to get into the mitochondria. Well, there, I'm not sure exactly how, but it appears the mechanism is pyruvate dehydrogenase comp, uh, kinase, PDK, impairs the transfer of pyruvate into, mit- into the mitochondria. So you can't Gener- generate glucose essentially. So it has to rely on glucose is the only way to generate its energy. It just can't use any of the methods. It's the Warburg effect. Well, it was interesting because last week I interviewed Russell Ryder, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He the sort of the godfather of melatonin, been doing this for 60 years. He did wrote his first paper in 64. And we had a discussion on mel- melatonin for cancer. And I think you mentioned in the intro that you were using it too. So it seems that is a, I've never really understood it or certainly never used it, but it seems ridiculously foolish to not integrate that into the program because it will actually help uh, address this Warburg effect that that, that the cancer cells utilize and and use it against them with a right dose of melatonin. So I'm wondering if you would agree with that and what the dosing of the melatonin you're using, if it's IV, probably, I suspect you're using an IV.
1: Well, we, we're using it both um, IV and oral route. So, and we, we too follow the, you know, melatonin levels to ensure we're, we're obtaining. Oh, wow. Those.
0: Really? Oh my gosh. I didn't even know you could do yeah. that. Now, do, well, you I, find, I, do you find that, that some... both the dose changes or the levels change based on the time of day, because theoretically, you know, we're going to make most of our melatonin at night. And when I discuss with writers it says, ideally you wake up at midnight and you'd draw your blood and measure melatonin levels because that's the, that's what's supposed to be the highest. So do you find the, di, the circadian di- diurnal variation to be a, a challenge when you're tr- trying to, to nail what the level is?
1: Not at the high doses uh, when we dose like that. So we'll measure four times during the day, Dr. McCullough with the, the melatonin levels. And so when we see all of those levels maxed out um, that's where you know that that's where I stick with the dosing, and I also try to dose there based on the weight. But there's less literature to guide us there mm-hmm. um, than there is like on the vitamin C front. But I agree with your statement. So we use vitamin C both IV and orally for all of our patients, and we use it in conjunction and in sequence with other therapies. Uh, we use it like you know at the beginning of hyperthermia. I give IV melatonin. We also use medical cannabis there. But then I also add in um, IV vitamin C during their hyperthermia where we're, you know, we're heating them up to 104, 105 degrees. Do you have a unit in your
0: office? Hyperthermia unit in your office? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. So that people don't have to go to uh, Mexico or Europe. You can do it in Arizona.
1: There's there's no better therapy for bone metastasis in my opinion i actually had a question one time from a patient they said if you had to go to a, a des- desert island what therapy would you what three therapies would you take and i was like now that is an interesting question yeah it is a
0: good uh, one it's a really good one hyperthermia i mean it's it's
1: one of them and vitamin c wait wait, wait. what was what what was the question targeted for just general health or
0: targeting cancer
1: targeting cancer targeting okay. cancer Yeah, targeting cancer. What I've seen the combination of IV vitamin C with hyperthermia do in bone metastasis is really shocking because when you have people go, well, how do you monitor this? Good question. When you have a PET CT scan or a bone scan coming in pre-treatment that shows bone metastasis, you have tumor markers, you have other metabolite markers, alkaline phosphatase, all these things that you can follow. At the beginning, they're elevated. Then you go through treatment. And I'll never forget, I got a, radio, a phone call from the radiology department one time. And he said, you know, the doc wants to talk to you. I said, sure, that's unusual, but okay. So then the, he goes, well, uh, did you send me the right patient? Did you order the right name? I said, why, why are you asking these questions? He said, because the bone mats, which were littered throughout the spine, they're gone. I said, what do you mean they're gone? He said, they're healed. He said, there's, there's no bed activity. They look like old fractures that have healed. And he said, do you have any clinical correlation to back this up? I said, oh, yeah, this patient came in in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk. Now she's walking. So you can see dramatic effects like that when you use these holistic, integrative natural therapies in combination. And th- and follow the science. And I agree with you too, about what you said about sugar, but I think what we wanna do, what I try to do with patients is I try to meet meet them where conventional medicine has taken them and then help to take them beyond that, which I know is what you do in your platform, which I commend you because you're asking the questions that everybody's afraid to ask. Um, and And that challenges the status quo, but that's more of what medicine needs today is to challenge the status quo to give answers because medicine has lost its way from being a patient advocate to being everything an advocate for everything else but the patient but what happens with the odor warburg effect is all of these metabolic changes where the high metabolic demand can't be met by the nutrient supply, the blood supply. So it starts to de- deviate, starts to turn, and it starts to do what it can do. And so it sacrifices efficiency for speed metabolically. And as you mentioned, the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, vitamin C comes in here and drops that. It inhibits that enzyme. Oh, it I didn't up- know. That. Up- yeah, and upregulates uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase. So as you correctly mentioned, it is forcing vitamin it is forcing cancer to use glucose in a way that freaks it out and it can't handle it yeah self-destruct mode <laughs> absolutely it's yeah. beautiful it's like if this was a drug, it would be in every clinic, every office, every yeah. hospital, and they'd charge a fortune for it oh yeah but it's
0: hundred percent so i want I want to get back to the uh, the the, the, the patient you described who had no bone meds as per the CT or PET CT scan. Uh, so I was listening to a podcast just a week or two ago with uh, Peter Ortia, and he was interviewing a research scientist that had developed liquid biopsy. And in, and in their discussion, they tangented off to the limits of metastasis detection with radiology. And it's, I think it was like a millimeter. It can't really uh, target, not target, but... Uh, identified tissues that are less than a millimeter. And they, they I did the calculation, I forget, but it was like maybe 10 billion cells. So it was relatively crude. So clearly the patient improved from what you described, but there still may have been some METs that were less than the, level, the threshold of detection based on the CT scan.
1: Oh, absolutely. What I tell patients, is, our goal is for you to achieve a no evidence of disease. What that means is laboratory wise, clinically, radiologically, we can't see anything, but by no means does that mean the work is done. And so, for example, the liquid biopsy, as you referenced, a, a, another helpful tool to help us to work when we can't see it. That's, yeah. the, that's where you want to be. You want to be where we're working, where we can't see the tumor. But right. it also is the hardest part because you you can't see what you're working on, but you yeah.
0: know it's there. Yeah. And and just so people know, it's still an emerging technology. It's certainly not in the final stages because there's so many technological barriers to it. It's if you listen to Peter Tia's discussion with the I, I was really fascinated with it because it seems like it's a great concept, but the, the science isn't there yet. Yeah, technology is not there. But but and with respect to, I mean, you you're grounded in natural medical science so you understand the dangers of ionizing radiation and ct scans are pretty darn high and you in my view you never want to do them unless you have no choice and certainly in following a malignancy that would be one of the indications but i i've never ordered one never had one done a pet ct scan but i but i understand that the levels of ionizing radiation are even higher in a pet ct scan is that true
1: uh, it, they are higher. This patient came in with a prior PET CT scan, so I'd rather not use them. But yeah. again, you know, we're trying to figure out what are we dealing with.
0: What are yeah, we yeah. No, with? I, there's a, there's an indication for it, but but the reason yeah. I tangented that because I think it's a useful tool, and people, are, you know, we need to hear something three, four, five, six, seven times before it finally kicks in. I've mentioned this many times in the past, but I want to remind people that when you're engaging in these diagnostic interventions, there's a, there's a serious risk. I, I talk about the dangers of EMF, which is non-ionizing radiation. And it's a fraction of what is being induced by these diagnostic techniques. And it doesn't mean you don't use them, but from my perspective, you engage with them in a very strategic way that is essentially optimizing your body's ability to produce the defense mechanism against it. One of the ways you can do it is just go in there fasting. I had a good friend of mine who manages a project for me in Central America. And, and right before he was starting the project, he got diagnosed with melanoma in the eye, and they were going to take his eye out and decided no, we went down to the University of Miami and they had this interesting strategy where they put a Radio implant in his eyelid for like five days, so uh, and they had incredible like ninety nine percent success rate with that, so he didn't have to re- remove his eye. but what we did in that case, which is pretty similar, probably even more radiation you get in a CT scan, is uh, he fasted for the entire time for two days like five days before, so he went in there fasting water fasting for five or seven days and then he was taking high dose uh, ketone esters to I mean, like Mm a hundred grams a day he was taking. So because ketones at high levels, they will radically upregulate NADPH, which is like the most unbelievable protective process you have in your body to, to just destroy this oxidative stress. Uh, So I just wanted to mention that. So you can use fasting and liquid or not liquid, but ketone esters to increase your ketones to address that. Ex- excess ionizing radiation when you need to do uh, a diagnostic intervention electively.
1: Yeah. And so when we, when we have a patient that has had, we need that imaging because we just, we need to see where it is. What's, what's it involved with how to target our therapy? Um, Cause we want to be as specific and detailed as possible in, in our treatments. We will, in that instance, if we order a CT or PET CT scan, because most cases they've had that done before and we want to compare apples to apples, not apples to kumquats. And so to be able to assess the progression of the tumor, uh, we will give them lower dose IV vitamin C pre-treatment, or me, pre-imaging and post-imaging to, mm-hmm. as you correctly that said- That would to work too. To counter, yeah. 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 To try to counter that effect.
0: So what, what type of dosing do you use pre, what's the timing for the, the ascorbic acid? Is it like six yeah, hours before an hour?
1: Yeah, do it at least six hours before, about six to 12 hours before in that window. So at about at 25 grams is what we typically do. So there I don't typically uh, oh. dose based on weight. I'll just do a 25 gram pre, and then we'll do that actually two to three days before as well. And then we'll do it afterwards as well. And again, is there's good literature.
0: Two to three days before the ionizing radiation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And There's actually stay up that what, what I, that that is peculiar. It doesn't seem that it would work. I mean, help, help me understand what well, works.
1: Well, when you when you look at the literature as it relates to cancer, septic, critically ill, and surgery patients, we know they're all low. We know mm-hmm. they're all low on plasma ascorbic acid, and we know their immune system is low. So what we want to do is come in and and treat them for a couple of days with just a good 25 grams, mm-hmm. and what that does is it it just helps to boost their levels. Okay. Then we give that final dose roughly between that six to 12 hour window mm-hmm. so that that gives them that boost right before. Then we follow typically within 12 hours with 25, and we then move from that standpoint and progress up to a higher okay. doses.
0: Well, Do you ever integrate that with the uh, ketone esters
1: and ketosis? You know, I, I used to. That's a good point with the ketone esters. Um, I, I think that is a great metabolic point. I yeah. think it, well, well with fasting. But-
0: that's, a, that's oh, the beauty of collaboration. I had the ester part and you had the vitamin C part. And together there was a powerful synergy. So use both. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 most, that's how, most and that's people, how you yeah, Most people don't have a port though. <laughs> but 25 grams, you can use it just to. Yeah. A
1: peripheral. Peripherally, that's fine. Peripherally, yeah. that's fine. But that's that's the beauty of and how you have to approach cancer. And it, the, whatever approach, it has to be approached in a multimodal way, you you yeah. can't just hey one you could but it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it, it so won't, won't
0: happen. We kind of tangented off some some really interesting discussions, but I want to circle back to the melatonin dosing that you're using because I'm really curious, uh, and then how what you found clinically because there's so few you're one of the few clinicians in the whole country that are probably not only using melatonin parenterally, but measuring the levels. So what type of, do you start with and what, what is your serum level that you're shooting for and what type of, what are the typical doses you found that seem to work?
1: Yeah. So we'll start off with IV as I'm giving it orally. So 10 to 20 milligrams IV, and that's to, again, to give them, uh, you know, a, shot to their system as we're dosing them on oral. So I start off at 60 milligrams as I'm dosing them IV. And then we add and we go up and titrate that on typically under 180 pounds. This is just my anecdotal observation. There's no science to support it. But under 180 pounds, I stop at about 180 on milligrams on the dose above that I'll go up if somebody's over 250 I'll dose them up to 300 milligrams and again so I'll melatonin put, and IV in one dose No I, no that's oral that's oral. oral so I'm using yeah so I'm using IV in the first 2 weeks to help me get those levels up as quick as I can as I'm titrating the oral dose up Okay
0: oh and do you and, then, and is that every day you're giving that dose yeah. Yeah. See, Because the, 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 this might be an important fine tune because I, I didn't, wasn't aware, but it makes perfect sense when you understand the, the chronobiology of it, but ideally your blood levels are supposed to peak at around midnight, right? So with that in mind, you, if you're going to do the oral dose, you want, you you want to take the highest dose, like right before bed, maybe 45 minutes before, and then right before bed. And then the other doses, if you're going to do it three times a day would be uh, maybe 10 a.m. and then 4 p.m. because you'd really want to keep it away from solar noon because otherwise yeah. you're going to stress the chronobiology because it, I mean, it, yeah. it, it is responsible for your circadian rhythm. It's melatonin, so you don't want to mess it up.
1: And, and I agree with you. So when patients go home, we do work more towards a more appropriate circadian rhythm of the delivery of melatonin. But when patients come to us, so many of them, like I said, are in that advanced stage. Mm -hmm. We have to really take these natural therapies and really work to turn the tide. And so in that in that acute setting, in the long-term setting with you, I completely agree, Dr. McCullough, but in that acute setting, we have to really use these therapies in combination and sequence together to to really turn the tide. But how, how often are you dosing it? Three times a day, four times? Oh, with, with the oral or IV? No oral. Okay. Yeah, with the oral, I actually have them dosing it typically just one time a day at about 8 p.m., about an hour before bedtime.
0: All right, so you're doing it already. You're doing it right before bed. So, yeah, yeah you, you got it. Yeah, that's perfect. I was just, you wouldn't want to do it, like, as soon as they wake up. That would not be good.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. so good. You, you're already doing it. The 300 milligrams, if you found... That uh, there's some concern in the in the medical community that high dose melatonin, that's pretty much anything over 10 milligrams, uh, actually uh, chelates out heavy metals, and you have to add binders to prevent any side effects
1: from that. Have you, has that
0: been your experience?
1: I've not seen that experience. I wouldn't say I've aggressively looked at that either. Now, okay. when I follow the melatonin levels. I'm following them via send out lab test, not a, not a conventional blood test. It's a blood uh, urine. So mm-hmm. that's the best tool I find to really assess. Cause I like to assess it at, you know, multiple times during the day and night to, mm-hmm. to make sure melatonin levels are, you know, in that acute stage, all in a, you know, therapeutic range. Um, but yeah, I've not looked at that. It's a good quest- question, a good thought. And when you look at vitamin C, it's a weak chelator as well. So I think the same question could be applied to it as you could to the question you asked about yeah, melatonin.
0: Yeah. yeah, but probably the scope of things is just all a matter of perspective. You know, I mean, a person's essentially terminal, you know, it becomes a relatively minor issue uh, in the long, you know, acutely. So I mean, you've got to keep them alive as the first priority. It's a triage in the scenario. You know,
1: and that's a great thing about vitamin C because we're sitting here talking about chelation. Yeah. Vitamin C is not a one trick pony. Yeah, of uh, course it, 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 antiviral, antibacterial, antiparasitic. I mean, you know, multi-drug resistant mycobacterium tuberculosis being treated with IV vitamin C.
0: Yeah, it's
1: amazing what so these I, these therapies can be used
0: for. A massive cause of death in the United States that most people aren't aware of is sepsis, and it has a very high mortality rate. Uh, Not treated properly, it's like 80% of the people who get get sepsis are dead, 80%. I mean, that's pretty damn high. So, uh, And of course, Paul Merrick has the most uh, notoriety for having the Merrick protocol or the Math Plus protocol, I think is what he developed, which is M is methylprednisone, A is ascorbic acid, T is thiamine, vitamin B1, H is heparin, and then the plus A yeah, is a few other, other components in there. But he, so I want you to talk about it, he's going to be speaking at this event in Tampa, and he surprisingly, and I I tried to interview him, but he just refuses to accept an invitation to be the dialogue, and I don't know why. I'm going to ask him at the event, <laughs> but uh he limits his, his dose. And you, you might have, I think you have some inside information on this to 1500 milligrams, because the person who is coordinating this event, I think your name's is Lior is her first name. Yeah, that? that's correct. Yeah. So she uh, is one of the main educators of vitamin C in the country and has collaborated with, Dr. Merrick and helped mentor him in some of his understanding of vitamin C, but but his his main protocol limits it to fifteen hundred milligrams, which in light of the doses you just discussed seems ridiculously low. So I'm wondering if you could address and discuss that that whole concept because I mean he's he saved a lot of people's lives with this protocol, but it seems like it could be even better.
1: Yeah, so, and I appreciate you talking about uh, the Vitamin C International Consortium Institute, VCICI, because what, what what this organization, particularly this upcoming conference, what's been put together is, you know, with you, Paul Merrick, Fleming, uh, Richard, oh, yeah. Richard, the Corey, the, the, these, and even, I was having a conversation with a, a veterinarian oncologist yesterday evening. I mean, just the different, Perspectives on how to use vitamin C, the clinical application. It I've I've never seen a lineup like this, and and you know you know you as you know, we have four uh, you know keynote speakers. You're one of them. I think this is really going to help to launch vitamin C, not just to something that's in people's consciousness, but something that we can get into clinical practice and really start to change lives. So back to the sepsis thing. Um, the point. You know, it's really interesting when you hear him tell about how he came across that. There was a patient that was dying of sepsis, and he had recently read a paper talking about the antioxidative effect of vitamin C. And so he, they, you know, on rounds, or I'm not sure exactly how it went, but the story was that he just said, well, let's give vitamin C with a little bit of hydrocortisone because that'll help too. And, and then let's give some thiamine. And lo and behold, this patient who was on I think three or four vasopressors to keep the pressure up, the you know the system from collapsing, the next day all the vasopressors were removed. And and this was at a dose of 1.5 grams. My theory on why he <laughs> used that, and he did that four times a day, which is every six hours. Which when you oh, think also about, so they got they got close to ten. Yeah, months. but but even there, I'm shocked. I'm stunned. At the results of that low dose. Yeah. Um, so if he had used, I don't think you would have to use effects like I, what I do with cancer, because here you are trying to be antioxidative, but you need it systemically, and so I think you probably could do something as low as twenty-five grams here. But I do think you need to repeat this throughout the twenty-four hour cycle because we know the half-life of vitamin C and just plasma and healthy liver tissue. It's 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 gone in a heartbeat, and well, so uh, sepsis
0: well, what, no, wait, something heartbeat
1: is a, heartbeat is a few hours. A heartbeat is not a half-life <laughs> unless right. it
0: truly is like a fraction of a second. Yeah, uh, it's
1: it's seventeen minutes. It's it's half-life half is it, yeah. It, it's I mean it, it is very very quick very very quick and you know what the the half-life
0: melatonin is uh it's 40 minutes okay yes but it varies depending on the oxidative stress so if you've got high oxidative stress it's going to be consumed like instantly
1: yeah so so here the 25 grams probably dosed you know three to four times a day would be very appropriate but you can follow this again, looking at the sepsis literature or critical illness literature. Uh, follow it with C-reactive protein. Follow it with interleukin six. These are inflammatory markers, and you can actually see these levels go down. And that's important because this is a part of that cytokine storm that got such uh, you know headline press during COVID. But it applies to chemotherapy-induced metastasis. It applies to so many different aspects of sepsis and critical illness that all of this research that he did there, and it really shows a very good intuitive questioning mind coming out of conventional academia medicine, willing to say, the science says this, I'm going to go there. So I have to applaud people like that. That because a lot of the patients and people may be listening to this interview, they don't understand the barriers to using vitamin C in my practice, let alone in somebody that's straight up conventional. I mean, it's not just barriers, it's targets for destruction.
0: Yeah. And to expand on that, he lost his hospital privileges and he was a hospitalist. I mean, that's the way he earned his living. They took his privileges away and they. Are in the process now of taking his internal medicine board certifications away.
1: So I mean, you know, he,
0: he and Pierre Corey too, yeah, and Peter yeah. McCullough, same, same boat. So yeah, science, science, science has lost its way. I mean, you know, it really, not, science has not lost its way. Well, it's the medicine, political powers medicine. that have been interfered with the process. So science yeah. is science; it's objective. It's like a gun—you can use it for good or for good. Use it for bad. They're clearly to perverting it to nefarious purposes.
1: Yeah, that, that is true. And and I think it's also, too, recognizing that we're all biased. And coming into that, we have to recognize that. But I think um, we need, if we restore ourselves in medicine to actually being patient advocates, and, and that's really what you're doing through everything that you do. And that's really what Paul Merrick was doing. Mm-hmm. They were being a patient advocate. They were willing to say, hey, I don't, This doesn't fit our paradigm, but nothing else is working. So there's science here. So I'm going to be a patient advocate. I'm not going to be an advocate for hospital or whatever. I'm going to focus on trying to help this patient, even if that puts me at risk. But I don't think he ever thought in his wildest thoughts that 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 would happen. But it has.
0: He was relatively insulated because he had such solid academic credentials. Uh, that he can get away with the uh, with the vitamin C stint. But once COVID narrative hit, oh he was good, he ran straight into a brick wall. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, it's exactly what you predict, but he was, you know, in, in, in the non-COVID world he was fine. But once you interject that uh, variable, it's just a disaster. So have so you when gone you- through, through similar uh, efforts to uh decredentialize you or Florida's oh, sure. sure.
1: You come underneath the attack. Um, that's why there's few, there's very few places in the United States, Dr. McCullough, where you can practice integratively, truly integratively. Uh, Arizona and Florida, I wouldn't even put Texas in that mix. I, I think those yeah. are the two states. Now, now,
0: Arizona has a homeopathic license uh, option, and I know many integrative doctors use it. Are you using it in your practice for protection?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm both licensed as an MD homeopath and as an MD. Oh uh, okay. In, yeah, I thought in that dual licensing, don't think that those boards really like each other either. <laughs> 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 so what 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 happens is you know you get caught in the middle of that debate. And I, a good a good colleague of mine, a friend, said, "Oh, just the love that you have." And I was like, "Yeah, but i feel like I'm my love is being torn apart. <laughs> They're tearing me apart." So, but yeah.
0: All right. Well, that, that's helped. I remember that because I know Gary Gordon. i do not even sure if he's still alive, but he, I mean, no, he had an Arizona homeopathic license too, but he was a real another pioneer, mostly in chelation. Yeah. EDT, that's what he was known for. Maybe, do you know Gary or know of him? I don't. I don't. Okay. Yeah. He was been around a long time. I, 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 he may have passed. I just don't know. I haven't seen him for a while. I think,
1: I, I think he has because I think he was, pretty, he was pretty foundational in the Arizona homeopathic medical Yeah.
0: yeah he was one of the guys that started it.
1: Yeah, um, I think he did pass. I think maybe three to four years ago, I, if I'm, my, my memory serves correct, because his wife, I actually met her. And I think I met her right after he had passed. And if yeah. he's still living, my mistake, but uh, yeah. I think you're correct.
0: Last time I saw him, he wasn't looking good. <laughs> so we were in the restroom together. And I said, Gary, we got to get you into someone who's, <laughs> you know, do a nice workup for you. And uh, I think he passed shortly after that.
1: We have two states that are bastions for freedom here, Florida and Arizona. And that's really, you know, that's really what we're dealing with here. Yeah.
0: And interestingly, those, you know, you got to imagine that maybe the sunshine has something to do with it because those are the two best states in the winter to be in much Arizona is better than California for sure. In my mind, because you get more sun and it's a little warmer temperature, but definitely more sun. Uh, It's actually a little bit higher latitude, but because of, I think it's an elevation. are, are you guys at a few thousand feet or, or so?
1: Yeah, well, if you get a little bit north in the valley, you can get to two thousand, even three thousand feet, very easily. But down in the you know Phoenix downtown area, it's about a thousand, I think. Okay, so you
0: the, the reason that's important because the higher elevation you have, the less filtrate filtration you have of the atmosphere, that means you get more UVB coming through, which is what generates vitamin D. So uh, that's why people in Utah can get pretty good vitamin D levels. And Even in the winter, because they have such a high elevation, sometimes eight, 10,000 feet. So, you know, it's, 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 it's the concentration of ultraviolet radiation that's responsible for the benefits. Do you integrate sun exposure as to part of your comprehensive, holistic approaches?
1: Yeah, that's a great Where we, It's a really good question because, you know, people want to focus on the treatments when they come here. And I tell them, well, your treatment's going to continue when you go home. 100%. So here- You know, it's but a lot of people don't look at it that way. They're like, "Oh, I'll come for this time frame, and then I'm, and then I'm done." Right? No, no, no. You've got to keep doing things at home. This is this is a complex process, but you know, our facilities here actually allow people to get outside, and and that's the great thing because the the. The, you know, it's the day that we have here that's not sunny is the rarity. And in fact, everybody yeah. mopes around here to press when we maybe have some high thin clouds, because, you know, here your wardrobe's very easy. You wake up. Is it warm? Check. Is it going to be sunny? Check. OK, I'm good. So yeah. you you figure it out. But will I put a well, shirt on or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. We do require clothes in the clinic. So we do require that. Yeah, but, dude, but they, when so they, they come me. off as soon as you
0: exit the clinic.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then do? My doctor told me to run nude. No, 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 I did not. No, um,
0: just mostly clothes, just like swimming suit. That's it. Swim,
1: when I tell it, them when they drip down to
0: your, your swimming swimsuit. That's
1: right. And that when you go,
0: go, swim
1: here's what I want you to do I want you to get in your front yard or backyard or whatever best allows you to do this and take off everything but shorts. You yeah. need that chest. You need that. That, that back, you need the, you know, as much legs as you can. You need full sun exposure. And that needs to be a part of your daily regimen. I talked to him about prayer and meditation perfect, and, perfect. Exercise. and sun exposure, critical. All of these are critical. Yeah, Cause you can get
0: vitamin D. I believe people living in Arizona and in Florida and even California to a certain extent it's like criminal that they would swallow vitamin D capsule because they can get it for free and much, much more, you know, 95% of melatonin is produced by near for exposure from the sun on your skin, 95% of normal melatonin production, not induced therapeutically through IVs like you're doing, but 95%. So when you're, you're giving them free vitamin D, free melatonin, free nitric oxide optimization, serotonin up increase and structuring their body water. It's just magnificent. So I'm I'm glad that you're doing that. Um, what about, uh, talking to them about lowering their omega six content and processed uh, seed oils?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we really work on a plant-based diet strategy. Um, so some,
0: you're plant-based Yeah but we had a, oh, I didn't
1: know darn we had other things we, we had to other say things. nasty things to I'm say not at the event. I'm not raw food okay um <laughs> yeah. I just what's well, wrong with raw food
0: I'm not as urgent as guests as burgers in the raw food but plant based has some serious issues especially when it relates to linoleic acid because it's really hard to be low linoleic think, acid in <laughs> plant based
1: because I knew, because knew
0: you could say that yeah it, you can do it but it's hard it's
1: really hard Yes, yeah. nutrition you know, the re- here. Let me tell you why I use the plant-based diet here. Okay. There's good literature. I, I agree. We're with We're going to have to that- have a
0: dialogue in Tampa about this. Okay.
1: Oh yeah. What I'm trying to do there is to really affect a change in the gut microbiome. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Sure. And the research has shown that the gut microbiome, in particular populations, are very significant in improving the efficacy of treatment or reducing the side effects. And so a plant-based diet is one of the ways, without just giving them a, another probiotic to take, because I tell them, look, the best probiotic is food. It's what you eat. And so by by aiding that with a plant-based diet, of course, we add other things into that, Dr. McCullough, of course, fish and things like that. But the, these strategies help us to set that foundation in the gut so as to help improve treatment effectiveness as well as reducing side effects. Yeah. So that's where that is, but well, I'm not a, you know, a hard I, follower to- I don't, you I don't have think to eat wrong. anyone could
0: argue that plant-based diet is in exponentially superior to the standard American diet. There's just okay. like no comparison, none. So you, you got it going there. I just think there's even further benefits and I look forward to discussing that with you in Tampa.
1: (laughs) Always, always areas to learn
0: Dr. Yeah. 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 Just, just further refining it because it's, you know, you taught me a lot of things today. I'm I'm excited to learn. Um, so, uh, I guess one question before we close and you can discuss some of what we can expect in Tampa, because anyone watching this is invited to attend. Um, what would you say the typical range of successful interventions that you have for people who visit you for these malignancies? And, I, and I'm sh- maybe you can divide the, that down into fact if they're pre-metastasis or post-metastasis, because I imagine the results are quite
1: different. They are very different. And then pre-treatment, post-treatment. Yeah. So, you know, most, I'd say probably 90% of our patients uh, are metastatic in prior, prior treatment. Um, in those patients, uh, in a six-week or maybe eight-week cycle, we can see a significant reduction in tumor burden. So what I tell them, when you come into our clinic, my goal is no evidence of disease when you leave. And they go, is that possible? Well, as that one case study I mentioned with that, that patient, it, it was achieved. Now, she ended up being with us for nine weeks, but the point is, she came in in a wheelchair, she walked out, and her PET CT scan, though at that point didn't reveal resolution of disease, it says, we don't see anything, yeah. and her tumor markers had done good, so in those situations, we're looking for, our goal is that no evidence of disease, but we're going to typically see in most of our patients, well over 50%, a significant reduction in that tumor burden uh, while they're here with us. Now, aftercare—that's very important to continue that process. And what we're talking about here is at least a fifty percent reduction in the tumor that you can see. And so many of our patients will come in like with a—you know—the breast is a whole tumor. Okay, um, their spine lights up like a Christmas tree. So it's not like we have a patient coming in and they have a small little nodule. Okay, these are patients that are have failed chemotherapy twice, surgery, uh-huh. recurred. It, it's a it's a tough spot to be in but if we can set a goal that is no evidence of disease and see a 50% reduction in these patients hey that's something that we can work with because we're not destroying the body actually there yeah. we're working to
0: build but, it up. but but the previous treatments did destroy the body which is so Oh exciting. absolutely I, was, I had absolutely. no idea I'm shocked. I shocked It almost fell over when you said that that the vast majority it was in the 90s percent of the people come in have had previous ruining their immune system okay with chemotherapy i mean that oh, is absolutely. like the, the death sentence i mean do you got there's got to be a marketing campaign to, to highlight to what i mean the, what i guess is it's typical i mean our head of it where at my, at my my office i mean he has the same thing. he had a, a a really bad cancer in his uh mouth uh, jaw and wanted wound up in surgery and conventional treatments and you know i and he's has been in multiple rounds of chemo i mean when your life's at stake it's it's People almost in, it, and your experience co- confirms it. They almost invariably go with conventional medicine. They will not try you first when they should have. if they, they tried you first or someone like you with these approaches, I mean, basically, it's a shorter course of therapy and it's almost almost. A, would you would you, in your experience, I gotta think from what my knowledge that it's probably it's almost a guarantee that if you get in before chemo, you're going to resolve it.
1: Oh, yeah. So there's another patient came in. She had bilateral breast cancer, was told she had uh, she needed a bilateral mastectomy, bilateral um, radiation with chemo and then lymph node dissection. So I mean, so this that was going to be a brutal six to 12 months of treatments. So when I was talking to her before she came, I said, let me tell you, my approach has been is that since you've not had any treatment, If we take this in a healing perspective and through a holistic integrative approach, you may not just save your breasts, but you may negate the need for any of those other therapies. And in fact, now she's over two years out. All right. (laughs) Cancer free. No breasts removed. No lymph nodes removed. Wow. Okay. So And so here is a person that was headed down that road that I think we would both agree would be life changing in a negative way. And yet we hit the pause button, took a chance. She took a chance to think, she took a chance to read. And then she said, you know what? I want a different approach. We approached it with a holistic based integrative approach, but by the evidence, many of the therapies we've discussed. And now, you know, she has both breasts and she's living. She even had COVID and did great. So,
0: yeah, well, you would exa- exactly predict that. If she was in the, she probably, she could have passed from COVID had she gone with the other route because due to the immune impairments. Uh, so your goal, I mean, that, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. And it would seem to me that your goal should be to increase those stories exponentially like put two zeros after it. it's like, you know, you've got to, because it's, 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 tra- it is beyond tragic that people are, most everyone comes to you after they've been, their immune systems has been decimated and their oh, yeah. likelihood of, of getting a result like the one you just described is radically decreased. You know, I mean, it's got, it's the best they can do at that point, but boy, they just, it was self-sabotage.
1: You don't want to say it's easy because, it, you know, when you're dealing with cancer, I mean, cancer. It's, is I know, but, look, but it sure. is when the body, when the immune system is not destroyed. Yeah. Okay. Things work so much better. Yeah. I mean, full it's dose like, chemo destroys the immune system. There's just no other ways.
0: You know, yeah. I'm, interestingly, the way I live my life, Nathan, is like, I treat myself like I have stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. you know, the, with respect to all my interventions, I'm, I'm assuming I have a terminal disease, and I do, it's called life, right? You're going to die anyway, but <laughs> I, I throw everything I know, how to optimize health. I treat myself like a professional athlete. Like I'm training for the centenarian Olympics as as Peter Tia would refer to. So, and it does it, a good thing. I mean, you, you retain your vitality and, you know, basically living a life of someone 20 or 30 years younger than me. So it really yeah, works. Important. So, but, but you're the, thinking, Go ahead. No, it, it's it's a strategy I encourage people to consider. Just assume don't wait until you come down with a damn diagnosis. Assume you got the worst and start treating it now.
1: Yeah, we, we as a culture here in the United States treat our cars more pro, oh, proactively true. and preventatively than we do our own bodies. You know, it's like, well, let's focus on early detection. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. But oh, you can really, make a good argument against early detection. Many of these oh, yeah. <laughs> we,
0: need like to be prevent-
1: <laughs> we need to be prevention oh yeah don't get me started there but prevention i mean goodness gracious you don't want to wait till something like cancer becomes detectable you don't want to wait till you have a heart attack you've lost 50 percent of your heart function no, you don't want to do you that. don't want to wait till you've had a stroke and now you can't speak you have you know you have uh you know facial evasion you have all these issues you don't want to do that you want to proactively prevent that from happening because once it goes off the rails it's hard to get that train back on track. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. So at
1: the event that we were at
0: in Denver, uh, he wasn't a speaker there, but he, he's well-known for his views on vitamin C and iron as Robert Thompson. And I think he yeah. wrote the vitamin, vitamin C lie or no, the calcium lies with the book he wrote.
1: Yeah, calcium. Uh,
0: so the, and I, I believe there's a lot of truth to what he says. I mean, I disagree with him on some things, but I'm, the, the reason I bring him up is that he, he's a good example of a clinician who strongly identify or stro, strongly believes in the danger of excess iron and that almost certainly every adult male and most adult women have excess iron. So I'm wondering if you have integrated that into your approach and are looking at ferritin levels and, and using aggressive uh, phlebotomy strategies to lower the iron levels.
1: You know, again, I think you have to to answer that question. You know, Dr. Thompson. I've read you know a lot of his writings over the years. Got to meet him for the first time there, mm-hmm. um, so it, it didn't disappoint. We had we had a good time. <laughs> uh, he's a he's a great guy. We he's we kind fair. of come from we come from similar backgrounds, so um, there was some so there was some camaraderie there. That's oh, right. He's a guy uh, of college
0: too, isn't he? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So we we had some good conversations. I really enjoyed my time with him. Um, so I, when I presented at the, the lecture there at Denver, I did, I think, present something that he took uh, issue with. And and, it, and all I was doing there is I was presenting some evidence. Again, when you look at this concept, I think what he says about by, uh, iron and ferritin as it relates whole preventatively is, is true. But when we're talking about cancer, we're talking about a, a, an environment that the literature is really saying this environment is unique within the context of the body. So we have all these different environments going on at the same time. In, in cancer, okay, the, the vitamin C effects will actually increase the pulling of iron in the tumor. Now, that may not sound good because if you're increasing the pull of iron in a healthy cell, that is actually very bad. But if you're increasing it in the cancer cell, that is exactly how that vitamin C through the hydrogen peroxide, through the interaction with that oh, metal, through works, the reaction, that's magic. how it's, it's going to destroy. It. Yeah. So,
0: stress. And then, absolutely.
1: I follow the iron, the ferritin levels, the ratios every okay. week. And I've been have, actually having to train the staff to understand, you know, we're actually looking at the metabolic effects of what vitamin C is doing. It's interesting.
0: I, I never knew that that would, that vitamin c works synergistically to lower uh actually to increase iron levels where you need it in the malignant cells and,
1: and actually, brought out of storage which is great you so, actually see it in the short term dr marcola you'll see levels go up now they won't go astronomically But say if somebody came in with a ferritin of a thousand, you know, I wouldn't put them, I'd keep their vitamin C levels under control. I'd I'd be bringing that down before we implemented that. But what you'll see if somebody comes in with a ferritin or iron that is maybe just above normal or just a little bit on the high side of normal, you'll see those levels actually go up. And, And the research points to that. And then what happens is you start to get ahead of that tumor and that tumor burden starts to shrink. You'll see that ferritin and iron actually drop. Wow. That's, so that's, so that's, those that's are amazing. the subtle cues that I'll see in following those labs through. So what
0: what through happens treatment. to those killed malignant cells? Uh, are they, how are they removed from the body? Through apoptosis and recycled? Or are they sloughed off? Are they they in the intestine? I mean, what, what, I guess it depends on the, 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 t- the origin and the tissue but how do they typically disappear? How are they removed?
1: Yeah, the correct answer is probably yes, all the above. I mean, when you look at iron, its use in cancer, it's not just apoptosis, it's more specific, called iron, you know, uh, feroptosis. There's autophagy, so if you can get the immune system to target the cancer, by the way, vitamin C helps. A mm-hmm. lot of these therapies that conventional medicine use work better. And so you can get the immune system to do its job. You can get the body to clean it up. So from apoptosis to feroptosis to autophagy, and then also getting the body just, you know, breaking it down and eliminating it renally and through the gut and making sure it's not reabsorbed in the gut. So all of these are going to be strategies that have to be employed by the body to clean it up and clear it out.
0: All right. Well, yeah, is there any, I think we're uh, close to the end. I would like, are there any, items on vitamin C or ascorbic acid that you'd like to mention that we haven't already discussed?
1: I think just in closing, I think what you're going to see in the future of vitamin C is it's going to be used in conjunction with surgery, preoperatively, postoperatively. I think the evidence is very clear on the benefit it will have there, irregardless of cancer. I think you're going to see vitamin C very, very soon become a significant adjunct in the field of radiology, oncology, in conventional medicine. There's actually research that shows using them in very close sequence to each other. By an hour, you actually augment the pro-oxidative effect. Again, not just helping people holistically, but trying to bridge this concept of natural medicine to bring conventional into the understanding of what we're doing. And then also it's gonna be used more in conjunction from a conventional standpoint with chemotherapy. So you're gonna see conventional medicine move to use vitamin C, but we've been using vitamin C all along and you can do so very much successfully without using those other therapies if you want to.
0: Okay. you know There is one question I neglected to ask you, especially at the high doses you're using. Normally, if you're gonna use uh, vitamin C intravenously, the recommendation is to check that the person doesn't have G6PD deficiency. That's glucose six phosphate dehydrogenase, which is actually responsible for generating NADPH, which Mm. helps neutralize some of the oxidative stress. And if you don't have that pathway working, it's generally recommended that you don't get that. So I'm wondering, is that something you check for? And if you have, have you ever found anyone that has it?
1: Yeah. You know, that's really interesting because that's a metabolic marker. Yeah. it it It's a coupling mechanism between the pentose phosphate pathway and glycolysis. Mm-hmm. And so, this G6PD is you're, you're correct, is recycling the electron to NAD, uh, NADA, NADP. And so, yeah, NADPH. So, it's, it's bringing that back in. So, in cancer cells, there's literature that's suggesting that in that environment, G6PD is actually upregulated in cancer. Oh, so I do just, okay. I do G6PD testing on all my patients. Okay. Initially, and then we do it halfway through. I cannot find any literature to support this, but my observation has been as they go through treatment, that G6PD goes down into the normal range. Wow. More often than not, it's elevated. But when I, reassess that we see that g6 pd come down into the normal range so i i don't use it just in terms of monitoring who's at risk for hemolysis hemolysis. i do i recommend that i know there are those out there that advocate not to but i also use it as a metabolic marker of cancer because that is one of the mechanisms of what vitamin c is disrupting i have seen two patients over the years that were g6 pd positive both of them were northern european Descent. So they didn't fit the classic, you know, yes. uh, epidemiology background of where they should be at risk.
0: So that's no, why they, I tested. So they, they had positive SNPs for G6PD, but did they, were their G6PD pathway level markers up elevated because of the cancer?
1: Uh, no, the, no, these patients weren't cancer I've talked about. The two patients I've actually oh, seen had okay. low G6PD, they they didn't have cancer. This was before I was full-time uh, dealing with cancer. It was probably 10 years ago. Uh, one of them actually started to develop um, anemia that we just couldn't get, you know, through nutrition and other uh, supplements. We couldn't get it to recover. So I just like, well, let me repeat a G6PD and came and it was low. I was like, holy cow, what happened it's here? A, it's a bad um, it's
0: kind of, in some ways, is almost as bad as type one diabetes. I mean, there's a cure for type one diabetes, but it's not really a good one. It keeps you alive, but you know, it's just a bad draw the cards, you know.
1: But in it's, cancer, G6PD more often than not is going to be, you know, high normal or yeah, elevated. All right. So, in cl- so, wrong. what? In closing, why don't we you tell people how they can find you? Yeah. Or- so I'm the medical director here at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. So you can check out our website at brio-medical.com. All right. Well, thank you, Nathan.
0: Appreciate all you're doing. And look, I will look forward to dialoguing with you in person in a few weeks. I look forward to it. Take all right. care.